0: Well, good morning. If you have been at Peachtree for any length of time this past year, you would know that we have been marching through the Gospel of Matthew. N.T. Wright says the Gospel of Matthew is the early church's favorite book. It was the most quoted book, the most copied book, the most preached book of the early Christian centuries. And many of us, almost all of us, have gone through it in its entirety. Turn to a neighbor and tell them, way to go. Way to go. Good, good. Today is the day we come to its final climax, the final charge, the final, the final gusto of Matthew 28. It would be like Hugh Freeze or Nick Saban or even a Kirby Smart giving that final speech saying let's go, let's go. If any of you don't know those names, there's plenty of people at this church that can educate you on them. What we're going to find this morning is that the resurrection, the good news of the gospel gives us four incredible gifts. The gift of hope and assurance, the gift of power and purpose. Gift of hope and assurance, power and purpose. Essentially pointing each one of us to a new life, this new life in Christ. But how we respond to it, what we do with this good news is of great importance. So this morning, we're going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 28 in its entirety. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Don't miss the irony in this moment. The one who's actually dead is alive, and those who are alive look like they're dead. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Just a quick aside. If you ever had a question if women should be leaders in a church, if women should be preachers in the church, look no further. They were the first to go proclaim the good news. They were the first ones to send out and preach the good news. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, The ladies are going, "Uh uh-huh. Keep going. (laughs) Brother, you're on it today. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they had gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews today. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, worshipped him, but Stum doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And will you help me read the last two verses? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I have come in to the every end of the age." Our text this morning begins in the early morning, the dawn for the two Marys. In fact, most mornings, that warm sunlight is usually a welcomed present, presence. But I don't think they even felt it this morning. I can imagine that they're fully not present, but that they're replaying the harrowing images of the, the days before, in which Jesus has been beaten, he's been flogged, and he's been put on a cross to die for the sins of humanity. The Marys are filled with hopelessness and uncertainty. And we know that the same is true for the disciples from John's gospel when they're locked away behind closed doors for fear of being the ones next, the ones that they will be crucified. And you can't miss how hopeless this situation is because he's been dead for three days. And they've got to be wondering and thinking to themselves, what were the last three years all about? Wasn't he the one? I mean, did we miss something? They're filled with hopelessness and uncertainty. Maybe you are in that same place where you're in a long or been in a short season of hopelessness and uncertainty, where the doubt and the worry and the anxiety and the fear just continues to pile up. You, like the Marys and the disciples, are hopeless and uncertain. The Bible is filled with uncertain stories. Just start with our dismal start in the book of Genesis, where we we screw it all up and sin enters into the world and death. You go on to the virgin birth of Mary, you've got Ruth's story in between, countless stories in Scripture of hopelessness and uncertainty, and the list goes on. And then you fast forward to Matthew 28, and this is the most bleakest, the most uncertain, the most hopeless moment in all of Scripture, because Jesus has died and if Jesus remains a dead person, then every person, every story, every, every narrative that has come before this, that has pointed to him, it's all been pointless and for naught. All those moments, gone. This is the one story where death, it cannot have the final say. Our entire faith crumbles if it does. But of course, what we find is what seemed hopeless and uncertain is no longer because Jesus has risen. This outcome it goes, goes beyond the grave and into eternity. Death does not have the final say. God's faithfulness and his promises, they hold true once again. And what it does is it, it lifts us from the depths of uncertainty and hopelessness into the realm of hope and assurance. Because what we find and seem that was un, un, uncertain and hopeless is no longer because he's with us. Even in our own stories, our darkest moments, God in his faithfulness, he shows up, removing our doubts and our fears, just like he did three days later by rising from the dead. And as we experience his presence and his faithfulness over and over again, we undergo this this transformation inside of us. We're assured that even in the face of death, whether it comes sooner than we'd like or later than expected, that there is hope beyond the grave. And this reshapes our mindset, allowing us to put confidence in Him in the resurrection because death, it simply has no say any longer. Death in many ways is truly the beginning for us as Christians. This is why Paul can say with absolute confidence and assurity that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is also why the Marys can move from absolute fear to just being filled with joy. And you too can have that perspective shift in your own situations. The resurrection does this. It instills that hope and assurance that transcends time and it connects us to that promise of life beyond the grave. Salvation for us as well. There is no greater news that has ever been told. Can I get an amen? amen. This This news must be shared. This news must go out into the world. The resurrection gives us the hope And assurance, the resurrection gives us the gift of purpose and power. But the going, living out the great commission, our call to go and make disciples, it can be a little difficult at times. I want you to imagine if we if you will for a moment, we'll use a sport that not many people follow. We'll use this one for example. Imagine if you've been training for this moment, that you're going to go play, you're going to play this game, this sport, and and you've been training all your life for it. You've got a coach, the coach has instilled all these values in you, and and you've practiced, You you go to your practice, you go religiously. You know everything there is to know about this game, and you are equipped to do so. And then the time comes for you to go and compete at Augusta National, the greatest golf event of the year. And we go to watch you. And when we go and watch you, we are absolutely puzzled because we don't see you playing, we don't see you teeing off. This is where we find you. You're a spectator. And all of us are going, what's going on? you got all that you need. You're equipped. We've seen you play. You know it all. You have it all. What is missing from this? You can probably see where I'm going with this. This is how we can often treat the Great Commission. We have all the knowledge. We've been equipped in every way. We have the power. God, or Paul says, that Jesus has given us a spirit, the same spirit that he raised Jesus from the dead. That lives in each one of us. So if we have those things, we have the knowledge, we've been equipped, we we have the power, why don't we go and make disciples? Why is that? I think there's two reasons. One, I think we can get caught up in just consuming. We just go to church, we consume, we consume. It's easier to consume rather than go and make disciples. The second thing is, I think we, have a, I think we just don't know how to do this practically speaking. And so this morning, what I wanna be able to do is I wanna give you practical steps for you to be able to do this well. To do this well and to go out and make disciples. But before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about my discipleship journey. It started one evening at a college group I used to go to way back in the day. College group was finishing up, and I went into the back of the room, and I saw this older man there, and I knew that he, he, had, uh, he basically met with a lot of the leaders, and his name was Doug. So I go up to him, and I said, hey, Doug, my name's Cody Jensen. And he looks at me, and he goes, I know who you are. <laughs> okay, that's not the first time I've heard that. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is not a good thing. And then the next thing you know, he invites me to the most probable, the most likely of places to be discipled. He took me here. (laughs) Yep. Home of the Dell Beef Burrito, guaranteed to wreck your stomach by the afternoon. The first time and every time we met after this, we sat in this exact booth in the corner. In fact, I just got breakfast with Doug uh, when I was back in California over the summer. And Doug's an incredible man. He's one of the most brilliant men that I know. And one thing Doug does really well is he disciples a lot, a lot of men. When I sit with him, he asks a number of questions. He just listens. And he he challenges me at different moments. He really models what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us. He modeled what it was supposed to do, how what we were supposed to do in terms of discipleship. Go and make disciples of all nations. These are the words Jesus gives his disciples on the mountain. John Ortberg describes this moment on the mountain when he says, Jesus called them on a mountain because a calling is a mountaintop experience. The disciples awoke to a purpose and an identity they did not have the day before. You and I are called to that same purpose. That same identity, we can do this, we must do this, we're called to do this, and you and I have the power to go and do this. So how can you take just some practical, some basic next steps so that you begin discipling other people? First, find the nearest Del Taco. I'm kidding, there's none in us here, it's terrible. First. Every time you enter a space or a place, have a mindset of being on mission. That you're there for a reason. What I mean by this is, is be sensitive to where God is leaning, leaning you. There might be people in your life right now uh, that you can be in that discipleship relationship. But you have to have that mindset, knowing that you have a purpose wherever you go and wherever, wherever you find people. This doesn't mean that you have to befriend everybody and talk to everybody. In fact, for some of us, your discipleship doesn't go any further than your household, your kids, or your grandchildren. And if you find that your circles that you think of that you're in just consist of Christians, it's time for you to branch out from those circles. Secondly, do what Doug did with me. Simply invite them to breakfast, to lunch, to dinner. You can go to Del Taco or you can go to Starbucks. Starbucks is a little less holy, but they all work. It all works. If you are far away from relationships, from grandkids, do it over technology, Zoom, or FaceTime, but invite them to do that with you. Thirdly, before you meet with these individuals in your lives, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in your conversation with them and how you're supposed to reach them, how you're supposed to guide them. You might have a nudge from the Holy Spirit to walk through a book with someone. You might have the nudge from the Holy Spirit one day to simply go on a walk with someone. Be sensitive to what the Spirit is speaking into you and what you're doing with them. And one thing we have to be careful of as Christians is sometimes when we want to go disciple people, all we want to do is cram a ton of knowledge into them. Read this, read this, read this. Those are all good things. Those things come in time. But that's not really what Jesus modeled. Jesus modeled what it was like to just love people, to be with people, to heal people, to speak healing words into people. In fact, if you go to the fourth chapter of John's gospel, he already has them baptizing people. They have no theological education. In fact, they quite frankly don't fully know who Jesus is. Yet they're simply doing and mimicking what Jesus did, and we're called to do the same. Lastly, when you meet with your individual's, Ask good questions and listen. Ask some questions like, why are you pursuing Jesus? What's hindering you from following Jesus? What do you love about God? What are you seeing in the scriptures? Ask great questions and don't always try to provide the answers for them. Let them sit in that. Jesus was one of our greatest models for this. People came up to him all the time asking him questions. And out of all of scripture, he maybe answered two of them. It's always asking a question and responding with a question. So where does this leave us? Where do we respond? How do we respond to the good news of the resurrection? Because how we do, it affects the way we live. There's a Native American parable that tells a story of a grandfather imparting wisdom to his grandson. And I've changed the wording a little bit for our context. But he goes on to say this, that there's two wolves inside each person and one wins in the end. He said there's one wolf that represents surrender, obedience, and a life of worship. And the other represents power and control in our fleshly desires. And the grandson asks him, which wolf will we win in the end? And he replies, it's the one that you feed. It's the one that you feed. And this is true for us in our response to the resurrection. We are either feeding one wolf or the other. In fact, we see t- two contrasting responses to the good news in this text. The first is that of the Marys, which resembles somewhat of the wise men when they came in the early chapters of Matthew with all of their heart and all of their devotion. We see the same thing. The Marys come and their response is to fall at Jesus' feet and to worship him. And don't miss the power of this moment because all the puzzle pieces that have been floating in their heads, all the things that Jesus said before this, that the Son of Man must die, that the temple will be rebuilt in three days. All these different things that he has said over time, they're all connecting for them. And all that uncertainty, it's beginning to fade and they're simply left worshiping at his feet. Every part of them is fixated on Jesus. In this moment, the past is met by the present and it changes the future for them and us forever. Let me say that again. In this moment, the past is met by the present And it changes the future for them and us forever. Their posture of worship, it it shows their hearts and their devotion. It shows us the wolf they've been feeding since they've been walking with Jesus. Tim Keller says this so eloquently about worship. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages and energizes your whole person, your whole being. It engages every aspect of your being, mind, will and emotions. And when you ascribe ultimate value to Jesus and worship him, you're essentially obeying. You're surrendering and you're living as his as he did. And worship, it's a paradox in the Christian faith. I mean, Matthew 10 highlights this. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In fact, one theologian says that Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 is the key to understanding the whole book. See, you only had to read 28 and you would have gotten the whole thing. You didn't need to go through this whole year. Why is that? Because everything before 28 shows us what it's like to be like Jesus, what to do as Jesus did. And then the last chapter says, now go. Go and do what I did. Go from everything I've showed you before. Go and do likewise. That is a life of worshiping Jesus There are two ways we can respond to the resurrection, the good news. We will either worship him, follow his teaching, obeying all that he has commanded us, or you will do the opposite. You cannot live in the middle. He wants all of our hearts. He wants all of our obedience. And when we do so, when we are worshiping and following him, we're continually filled with the power and living out our purpose of the good news. But we also see the other response in this chapter that of the guards, the chief priests, and the elders, which resembles Herod's response in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel. It's a response in which they're beholden to the power and control over their lives. So much so that acknowledging or even entertaining the thought of the resurrection, it's out of the question. And when I first looked at this text, I thought to myself, gosh, I just don't see how this applies to us. I just kind of gleaned over it. Thought, ah, yeah, they're, they're telling a lie. They're putting that away. But I don't know how this really connects for us. And then I began to look at it a little, bit, a little bit differently, and I saw how this connects. In other words, we can respond in such a way to the resurrection that our lives, our desires, our mindset, we can hold on to our power and our control over our lives. We don't want it shifted or changed or bent to God's ways. It's in this type of response where we put ourselves at the helm of our ship. The great temptation of today is that, that That we allow ourselves to be at the center of our universe, living out our desires on our own thrones. And when we do that, everything becomes about us. And we're essentially feeding the other wolf. And the outcome of this is a world that's no longer being discipled. And a world where Christians aren't discipling people is a world that tends to look and trend up and to the right in the areas of hopelessness and uncertainty and feeling lost. We see it everywhere in the world. Why? Because no one's telling them the good news. People aren't walking with people regularly to disciple them. They're not living into our great calling and purpose. Which wolf are you feeding? Are you feeding the one that worships Jesus or the one that seeks to maintain power and control over your life? The resurrection, the gospel, it calls us to to do the opposite. Whereby you lose your life, your desires, your way, you're going to find it actually. You're going to find power and purpose, hope and assurance. The gospel is not about living out our desires. It's about dying to them. And when we do that, when we worship him, we live differently. I think it only makes sense to close out my sermon by quoting a German theologian with Wolf in his first name. <laughs> Wolfhard Pannenberg, he goes on to say this about the, the resurrection. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. We cannot be the same people in light of the resurrection. How we respond to the gospel of the resurrection is of great importance. The final words of Matthew's gospel are some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. John prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus Jesus goes ahead of us like he did in Galilee, and he prepares the way for us. He is with you in in your uncertainty and in your hopelessness, and he is with you as you go. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the resurrection. We thank you that it gives us a hope and assurance of life beyond the grave and the fact that you never leave us and you walk with us through all of it all. And that you go, as we go, to make disciples of all nations. Lord, thank you for the power and the purpose the resurrection gives us. So help us, launch us from this place, being a people, demonstrating and showing your light into the world. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.